Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. I'm Pete, and as usual, I'm here with Connor, uh, the Corwin to my random. And uh, (laughs) today we are going to be talking about Nine Princes in Amber, which is the the first book in Zelazny's uh, Amber series. And, um, well, I I think it's a banger. Uh, Connor, uh... What's your history with this book? When did you read it? <laughs> Are you turning that around on me? Uh, <laughs> I first read this book over the last few weeks. I have a funny anecdote about it, which is that um, Pete, when he visited me in Missoula back in December, gave me these old uh, hardcover, um, hardbound editions of the first few books of The Amber Cycle, um, which are these sort of great like 70s pulp covers and everything. And the one that I've been reading from is kind of packaged as one as one book that is sort of the length of a medium length novel. But we got our signals crossed a little bit. And apparently there are two books of this cycle in there, Nine Princes in Amber and Guns of Avalon. So this whole time I thought that I hadn't quite finished Nine Princes when, in fact, I was already reading Guns of Avalon. That was actually a pretty boring anecdote, but it, it kind of uh, <laughs> gives you a peek into my malaise, malaise the last few weeks here. Um, well, yeah, I've been reading this under quarantine. <laughs> and so, I mean, it, it does show that I'm keeping my promise of not trying to give you 600 page things to read. It just happened by accident. No, I, honestly, I mean, this edition that you gave me, I think both books together are like 350 pages, if that sort okay. of normal, normal size. I mean, so, I mean, each book is... In this edition, under 200 pages, I don't think that these, um, I doubt that that Nine Princes even hit 60,000 words. So that's one thing. If you haven't read this book yet, I do recommend it because it is fun. It, it does move quickly and it is not very long. And that's always a good, uh, <laughs> that's always part of my, my strong recommendations on this pod. Not always, but often. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, it's always, uh, it's always good to go back to Zelazny, certainly for me. Because, I mean, uh, you, you could characterize me as a little insane about Zelazny. I don't think that would be entirely unfair. But uh, I do, uh, when you talk about Zelazny, uh, these books pretty much have to always come up. They're his most read works. Uh, they're certainly his most influential works. Uh, I, I don't know about best, but I think they're bangers. And, like, really, what, what, what do you want from me? Like, not every... Not every book is going to be Wuthering Heights here, but uh, these are fun, adventurous reads that you can knock out in an afternoon. Five stars. What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, if people don't like that kind of reading, I'm not sure they're listening to this podcast. Maybe they heard the Adorno episode and got the wrong idea. Um, but yes, that's, I think that's all very valid. I, I want to go back to, I don't want to go very much longer without going back to what you said about 
the pure entertainment value of these texts because it doesn't mean that we've bounced uh, around as I've been reading and as we were discussing doing this one. But before we do that, I think it might be good if now I will say we've talked about Zelazny before in this pod a couple of times. Um, his name pops up a lot on here. He's kind of one of becoming one of the patron saints of this podcast, which I'm totally okay with. But I think it would be best if Pete, if you could give us, um, you know, a refresher on who Zelazny was, what his whole deal was, who we're dealing with here. All right. So um, earlier in our podcast, at which I mean, like 40 episodes ago, we spent a lot of time talking about. Oh, well timed, sir. Well timed. Let, let me join you. <laughs> okay, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, this is the golden golden age. This is cyberpunk. This is new wave, and like those those distinctions are not the most exciting thing for us to talk about within genre fiction. But like when you're looking at chronology, it's not a bad thing to be aware of. So um, Roger Zelazny showed up as an author when everybody was sort of turning their back on what the golden age was doing. So um, we're, we're getting, we're getting a little tired of, uh, Oh God, uh, Kim in space. We're, we're getting a little tired of, of the Victorian era introducing reading and, and ironworking to savage aliens all over the world. Let's do so all over the universe. Let's do something else. And, of that something else, the neat thing about this genre of writers is everybody did something different, and it was wacky. So you had Ursula Le Guin, who uh, I don't know if she's the one of the patron saints of the pods, but I'd like to nominate her. Uh, she she concentrated on anthropology, economics, social science, and built a a, a style of science fiction that. I, I don't think anybody's been able to successfully uh, replicate. Though there are some homages out there we're going to be talking about in time. You had people who were just like, just just the gloomiest fuckers you're ever going to find in this era, like uh, Thomas Deesh, who did The Genocides, which is a 400-page book which ends with the last person on Earth dying like a pig. Uh, I <laughs> mean, like, great. yeah, oh, it's, oh, dude, we got to read it sometime. Like on a really upbeat day, we got to read it. Like not, not, not during this stuff. But uh, Zelazny of this group, I'd characterize him as uh, their poet, their mythic guy, because what he was really focused on was um, interesting visuals and poetry and and telling a story that's a real story like he seemed to be much more interested in the craft of writing and the craft of energy than he actually was in science fiction i mean like if you look at his stuff and it's like let's look for some hard science fiction it, it ain't happening because he has zero interest in that a lot of his books are like well let's take uh uh, let's take the the gods of this mythos and make them ancient aliens or whatever. Like he he's he's goofing on existing materials and and trying to do it in a way that creates um, fun stories. And as a result, um, he's pretty unique. 
And uh, a lot of authors that I have a tremendous amount of respect for have sort of gone to his well to try and like, I want to write like him or I'm writing in his vein. And, you know, like uh, Walter John Williams is a very good example of that. Uh, Stephen Bruce, who's been on the show. Um, let's see, who else? Neil Gaiman. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, also going to be on the show. I just like I need <laughs> I need to work out the kidnapping details, but it's going to happen. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I mean, I honestly believe that because like we're I, I want to talk to every major author that's been influenced by Zelazny. I think that's a worthy thing to do. And like by the time we get most of them in there, like that man has to notice us. I do sound like I'm going to kidnap him. <laughs> yeah, uh, Neil, if you're listening to this, we love you, buddy. It's all in good fun. Um, but he has a good sense of humor, so, you know. But, I mean, you're, you're making a really important point here, which is that I, I, I want to let you finish, but I do want to jump in and just say that the really key thing about Zelazny, the more that I read him and the more that I learn about him, yes, he is sort of the clearest predecessor of Gaiman, and that alone makes him really culturally important now. Um, but precisely because he was he was drawing on so many different sources and synthesizing them and remixing them and repurposing them, and it was just sort of this very capacious, imaginative hodgepodge. We take that kind of storytelling very much for granted now, and I think it's fair to say that in its contemporary forms, Elazi is one of the people who invented it. Um, there's sort of, as you said, there's sort of the basic idea that you could combine uh, in, in an interesting and cerebral way that you could combine ancient aliens with like. I don't think that's exactly this, but like with Norse mythology or whatever, that you could take these different source materials, you could recombine them, and you get something pretty great out of it that wasn't just like total trash. I mean, I don't know. I don't know enough about the arc of how these things shook out. I will say that, again, to me, from what we have read of him, he is that he is like, Gaiman is the guy that I think I, I trace most clearly to him. And of course, Gaiman's had this just profound transformative effect on culture that is not you know, he's really one of the giants just sort of permeating out with out through the the narrative arts in ways that we can't even fully grasp. But anyway, I just think the point is that Zelazny was ahead of his time in a way that would become really influential. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. It is. I, uh, I, to, to listeners that are interested in trying to get a foothold of like what, what Zelazny like, there's some great ways to do this. One is picking up the book that we're talking about today. Nine, Nine Princes of Amber in Amber, good Lord, is, uh, is one of his most popular books. It's the start of his most popular series. It's wildly accessible. It's a lot of fun. Um, Zelazny was also uh, one of the most prolific short story writers I can think of. And there's some wonderful collections out there, like uh, Unicorn Variations. Uh, like, you could just go grab one of those. And, and they're, they're in used bookstores. They're just there. He's, like, he's the last name in the science fiction alphabet, right? So you could just go to Zelazny and pick it up. It's easy. Um, I Someday we're going to talk about uh, Lord of Light, which is sort of it's it's widely regarded as his best work. Um, that's uh, that is also worth your time. Uh, so yeah, that's one that always comes up when I when I mention his name on Twitter, Lord of Light. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, so let me think about this. You had a reaction to Nine Princes in Amber about uh, how it related to other mediums. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, Connor? I absolutely do. I mean, video games, but also I think more importantly, card and board games. But I, I first I would want to say 
I kind of want to, I could, I could try to describe a little bit. I could try to describe what this is about, but because you're the expert and you've, you've read through the whole series multiple times. I mean, how would you describe this series in general and, you know, this first book in the series? And then I'll talk about the board game connection because I think it sort of emerges organically from that. Okay. So, um, I want, think of the universe as, uh, oh man, this is actually tough. Uh, so, uh, the universe has one real thing in it, and that thing is amber. And you could say that's a world or a city. It doesn't matter. Like, it's there's the central piece. And in the central piece, there's a bunch of kings and queens, or a bunch of lords and ladies, important people. And everything else, as you move away from amber, is a shadow of it. So, like... Uh, if if you travel to a realm very close to Amber, things look a lot like Amber, but they're a little different. But the farther and farther out you go, the more variation it is and the less potentially real things are. And the 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 lords and ladies of Amber, the princesses and princesses, have the ability to travel between these different worlds, making them effectively God. Because it's a multiverse. You can go to anywhere you want that has any set of rules you want, and you can look for specific things. Like, I want to find the world where I'm Tom Hanks. Easy to do. You just walk through until you find it. Uh, this series is a, specifically about one of the princes, Corwin, and uh, his, his, uh, his drive towards the throne, uh, his... Uh, near miss uh, of of destroying everything. Like it's it's a it's a it's an it's an epic journey of multiverse royalty, basically. Yeah, that's a very good description. And again, I'm only one and a half books into this series. Um, yeah, I was really trying know. not to spoil there. <laughs> I mean, you, you did a good job. I mean, it, it, there's all these siblings. Um, some of whom, when we start out, I, I don't know how this shakes out. Some of whom may be dead. Some of whom are certainly missing. Um, some sisters, some brothers, they all have different strengths and weaknesses. And a number of them, not all of them, but a number of them are vying for the throne of Amber. And mostly it's the brothers. It's a few key. key and, the, and then it's like the brothers are forming alliances to sort of make this happen. It's, yeah, as Pete said, it's very, that, that element, like, there is a very strong, this, this gets my point about board games and card games and video games. Like, there's a very strong element here of like, I use terms like self-conscious and reflexive a lot when referring to storytelling. And Zelazny in this, in this text and elsewhere, but in general, like, he's very much playing with the idea that, yes, there is this thing that these characters want. It's a very generic thing. They want the throne of the sacred realm or whatever. And that is always going to be there and it's going to to sort of provide a tug on all of these characters in different ways. And then given that premise and the premise that Pete just described, which is this sort of like multiverse complicated magic system that kind of weaves into this multiverse and layered realities. Um, and basically, basically like I say that in, in the abstract, what it means concretely is that Zelazny uh, his characters, but more importantly, Zelazny can do whatever he wants. <laughs> and that's the key thing here that I'm getting at. Like he's anchored. He anchors the story with these very, you know, traditional narrative devices. Like they want to vie over the crown. And then he just I, I think there's a sense in these first two books already. And there's many more to come if we continue on this path of just riffing almost. Um, 
you know, the next one is called Guns of Avalon and it's a lot of it's Arthurian legend. Um, And I I think this is a good point place to mention, like the, where this character starts out, which we're going to talk about the amnesia, but the character starts out with amnesia in our world, essentially like in upstate New York or something in the seventies. And he's, it's a first person narrator Corbin and he has to sort of piece together what's happening, but he's, you know, he's very clever and canny about it. There's action happening while he's doing it. You know, bad guys are always bursting in and, Anyway, again, like the sense of fun on display here, the reason that Pete picked this um, as a read that would give us a sort of uncomplicated sense of enjoyment, I think this was very aptly picked. And from there, from that ramble, I just want to say briefly, there is a very strong game element to all of this. And I feel like this could easily be revived for a lot of different kinds of games. I would say like one of those like deck based board games might be best because Essentially, like like literally in this universe, the siblings all have these decks, these packs of cards that show the other siblings. And if you have the card of that sibling, you can like try to tell you can contact them via it and you can try to teleport to them. It's complicated and fraught depending on what, on what terms you are with them and all that kind of thing. But you already have like literally already have the trading cards that have them rendered in the way that they would be on a board game. And again, it's they're vying over something very simple. So it's like whatever process you would use to sort of build up your armies to try to take Amber, the game just writes itself out of this. Is that fair to say, Pete? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and they're also, they're archetypes. I mean, if you think about who Zelazny is as a writer, he's very comfortable saying, well, I'm going to take these group of gods and I'm going to make them real people. And all he did here was he made the gods first. So like... Corwin versus Random are completely different people. They literally wear different colors to make it easier to tell them apart. And so you have you have these ready made. I mean, it's like like the the uh, it's not like every single one of these people looks identical and is wearing similar outfits like they're deliberately differentiated from each other as far as possible for storytelling. And that seems like a choice like he was trying to make an RPG out of it. Um, and actually there was one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in the early, like you said that there was, there was one way back in the day and then it wasn't very good, right? Yes. It was called Amber Diceless Roleplaying. And the basic idea was it was, it was an attempt to do what Vampire the Masquerade did later. It was a lot more focused on the roleplaying aspect. So you'd sit around and be one of the princes and talk to your friends. And like the world wasn't ready for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're talking about 40 years ago. And this is part of my point. Like in the sort of board game renaissance we're living through now, like someone could make a really kick ass board game out of this. I don't think that that. The fact that it could be a really great board game cheapens it at all. I think it kind of gets to the point of the book, which is like, this is a book that is meant to stimulate a, a particular type of fun that I don't think is necessarily unsophisticated or unintelligent because I, I don't think this is a book written for morons or whatever. But I do think that like the way that it sort of foregrounds what it's going to do to get its narrative momentum and what it has to set up to sort of put the wheels of, of action in motion, but also putting all that in motion while leaving it so I mean, there, there's two there's two different axes in play here. One is that like the motivation is very overdetermined because our character is a prince of amber and he wants to reign in amber, and that's just a class, you know, just very simple, almost abstracted from any actual character traits type motivation. But then then more well, his, yeah. His other motivation is to smoke cigarettes. Apparently, yeah, yeah. I mean, smoke cigarettes. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. This this character is not a huge drinker, but like he's definitely amorous. Um, 
you know, these, these are, these are like, these are, these are sort of pagan gods in that they're gods who enjoy life. Um, and uh, what I'm going with this is to say like, that is that overdetermined is the wrong word, but sort of like rigidly determined that sort of primary motivation. But the rest of it, again, Zelazny's giving himself options. He's, he's leaving himself, he's created a system, a magic system and a set of world rules or whatever you want to call them. Uh, that lets him, you know, a, he could have kept going forever, essentially, with this. And he could have kept kept generating different storylines on different worlds. Um, and as I'm saying this spiel, I'm having a depressing thought, which is that I'm I'm certain that uh, Ernest Klein, Ready Player One guy, definitely drew a lot of inspiration from this view of multiple worlds <laughs> <laughs> for the yeah. Oasis. But anyway, that's a, actually, I mean... Klein is really into like seventies, eighties pop culture, so I'm sure he probably did read this um, this book. But uh, well, and we, this, uh, I, I was okay. One one of the things, like I've talked about this before, but one of the things that Zelazny is known for is writing a book that's never published. And so there was a book about two of the princes, and I believe the princes' names are Osric and Findo, and they basically don't play any real role in this series, but he did a background story that we're never going to see that tied into this. And that's such a fascinating inside out way to write for me. It's like, I, I've, I know enough writers. I know it's really difficult to get it down and get it built. And the idea to, to, to build the story like a scaffolding. So you've got more details later. Fascinates me. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, to clarify, I think what you mean. Um, so everyone understands at home is that Zelazny would write an entire prequel uh, novel and then throw it away just to have the backstory in his head, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I think that is kind of extreme behavior. I will say that the the more that I write, the more that I work on novels, the less extreme that sounds. Just in the sense that, like, I I am very much one to usually. I mean, both I've only done two, you know, novel projects, but in both cases, I've written at least one draft that like completely got thrown out and rewritten. And for the first novel, I did that multiple times. And in the current one, I think that this kind of second rewrite will be will continue to be revised, but will not be completely thrown out um, and will sort of continue to be the project as such. But I mean, I, I get where that impulse comes from is what I guess what I'm saying. And like my current project does have a novel's worth of backstory to it, which I did not write out. I mean, I do think it would have been pretty extreme for me to write it out in like just because like even writing a very rough full length draft of a novel takes some time. I mean, Zelazny I'm sure was profoundly prolific and you may have heard me say this on this pod before. I'm developing a theory that one of the biggest problems in genre fiction is just that writers have been under so much pressure to produce and that a lot of the reputation, the bad reputation of sci-fi and fantasy comes from writers just having to write too much and therefore not writing as well. But that's something of a side note because I don't think that's that's necessarily the problem with this story. In fact, I think these novels thus far are a really good example of the kind of work that I admire that can be produced very quickly. And Pete, do you mind if I use that as a segue to actually read from the book to kind of give people a sense of what I mean? Oh, Connor, I was hoping you would. Absolutely. Okay. So here is um, that's about halfway, I don't know, maybe a little bit before halfway through Nine Princes in Amber. And to give you a sense of the way this story works, I know our hero has woken up with amnesia. Uh, a series of events happen that reunite him with his siblings. They see some wild shit. And at this point, he is underwater, in an underwater city that he can visit, which is sort of near the city of Amber. Um, 
you know, that's just sort of the fun that Zlasny's having. Anyway, here's how that, that section opens. After we had eaten, and I had learned the trick of eating underwater, which I might detail later on if circumstances really warrant, we rose from our places within the marble high hall, decorated with nets and ropes of red and brown, and we made our way back along a narrow corridor and down, down, beneath the floor of the sea itself, first by means of a spiral staircase that screwed its way through absolute darkness and glowed. After about 20 paces, my brother said, screw, and stepped off the staircase and began swimming downward alongside it. It is faster that way, said Moira, and it is a long way down, said Deirdre, knowing the distance of the one in amber. So we all stepped off and swam downward through darkness, beside the glowing, twisting thing. It took perhaps ten minutes to reach the bottom, but when our feet touched the floor, we stood, with no tendency to drift. There was light about us then, from a few feeble flames set within inches, n- niches in the wall. Why is this part of the ocean, within the double of amber, so different from waters elsewhere, I asked. Because that is the way it is, said Deirdre, which irritated me. We were in an enormous cavern, and tunnel shut off from it all in all directions. We moved toward one. After walking along it for an awfully long while, we began to encounter side passages, some of which had doors or grills before them, and some of which did not. I'm going to stop there. I think that I, I got to the really key quote, um, which I didn't even necessarily know was going to be in this section, which I chose fairly hastily. But when Deirdre, one of his sisters, says, because that's the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's that is the lasney i'm telling you right now that's the lasney speaking through a character to the reader to say stop asking why we're going down a magical staircase underwater like just just enjoy it um and you got a taste of like how the book sort of works its way through that and and Zelazny often does things where he like early on it says like I had learned the trick of eating underwater, which I might detail later on if circumstances really warrant. He gives himself outs from explaining things all the time. And it's easier to do that with a first person narrator because you can you can write it off as this is what the character would actually say. And I mean, fair enough. Corwin would probably say that. But like, it's just hilarious to see Zelazny sort of figure out something he wants to do, start doing it, realize there might be an objection answer that objection by waving it away in not, not in a, in a snide way, but in sort of a good natured way and just be like, ah, you know, whatever, we'll just, we'll just roll with it and to get, get back to Deirdre because that's the way it is. Um, and you know, I want to let Pete here, Pete talk here, but I think that like, this is a really important point that like, if you keep that sort of good natured spirit about things, and if you are, I think this is a really important point here. If you are attending closely to the enjoyment of the reader and you're trying to provide them a fun experience and you're not being snide and sardonic about it, then I think you can get away with an awful lot of that spirit of this is the way it is and we're rolling with it. But it really hinges on your generosity and warmth um, to, toward the reader and your desire to give them something that is just sort of purely enjoyable, which I think Zelazny cared very much about and it's very much on display here. Am I making sense here, Pete? Yeah, yeah, and it's also, like, you've watched Mystery Science Theater, right? You know, like, the opening theme song? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, just remember it's a show and I should relax. I mean, that's sort of, like, I, it is, it's an important thing to do when you're reading. On some level, you're always doing suspension of disbelief, and I think it's cool that he nods to that, but also doesn't let it dominate. Like, that's the risk of the hard science guys, it's like that's how you get 30 pages describing how an airlock works. And nobody wants that. I, absolutely. I mean, if people recall, you can go back. There are um, a couple of exclusive episodes we did about Zelazny short stories, both of which are sci-fi about robots. They're actually <laughs> both about robots after the end of humanity. Um, one is much longer for a breath I tarry, and one is the short 
uh, stainless steel leech. They're both great. Um, highly recommend. But I mean, yeah, like those are in a sense kind of high concept science fiction. Uh, and neither of them is really hard sci-fi, just in the sense that Zelazny is not interested in how the robots were engineered, how they, you know, how any of this shit works. And I mean, yeah, what, what's the power system? <laughs> now, to be clear, I'm sure we have some we probably do have some fairly big hard sci-fi fans that listen to our show. So I apologize for making fun of you a little bit there. But um, <laughs> uh, I, I think it's fine for the right story. It just wasn't right for his. N- no, absolutely not. And I think that that. Nine Princes and Amber walks a really fine line between being quite interested in its own magic system because he does come up with all these rules, like how the Trump, the, the sort of communication with the siblings via the Trump cards works, um, how walking in shadow or creating things in shadows works. Because if you're a Prince of Amber, you can use shadow magic to create things that you want in the realms of shadows. Um, he, I don't think it's the He's not like, again, he's, he's, good natured about it and he wants you to enjoy it. So he's not just like there is, there would be a real trap here of like foregrounding his insouciance and being like, and, and sort of making his own refusal to comply with his own rules. Kind of the, the, the core of the story at that point, it would just be satire. And this is not really satire. It's, it, it is parody at points. I think that like parody can be loving. And I think that when you're doing this kind of layered homage, like Zelazny is, you're always doing a kind of parody which is simply a kind of a, a, an imitate a humorous imitation essentially. Um, and that does not have to be cutting or indicting anything, but I think that this is a guy who was grabbing material from all over doing a kind of light parody of it and getting where he wanted to get on that basis. Um, you know, we, we've thrown around words in the show like pulp or schlock and it's hard to know what they, what they really mean. This book has an element of all of that, but I think that that it, insofar as there's something kind of there's a higher intellectual and aesthetic agenda to it, I think it really has to do with how we think about pastiche, homage, uh, and and ultimately the art of parody. And again, parody parody gets confused with kind of a biting satire, which is not really necessarily what it means. I'll stop rambling about genre terms now. And um, all right. I on that note, though, I do think that it's interesting to go back to where we started, which is, was you introducing this in kind of the terms we just covered, which is that it, you know, you looked at it as pure entertainment, pure fun. And I, I'm not trying to put you too much on the spot, but I, I got the sense you were a little, you were a little bit worried that I would think this was just too lighthearted, too flimsy, too frivolous. Am I, was I right about that? Oh, I, th- I think that's true. Like the, the best, I like if, if, if fantasy and science fiction didn't exist, the best thing I would be able to compare these books to would be like Louis L'Amour novels. I mean, they sort of have the feel of the odor. Like you, you uh, it's, it's, it's an adventure with some, 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 some violence and some romance and some kick ass. And, you know, it's designed to, to, to entertain you until the next one comes out. Like that's sort of the vibe. And that's, I mean, that's not normally well where you dwell, Connor. I'm not saying you don't have it in you to enjoy more frivolous pursuits, but it's it's not your first read choice is my take. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of truth to that. And obviously, a lot of the things that we've covered on the show are some of the more more highbrow or dare we say serious um, instances of genre fiction like Left Hand of Darkness or Parable of the Sower. Um, we've also covered things that I, I you know, I, that, that are very invested in their own sense of fun. Like, I mean, Neuromancer is that, for instance. Yeah. Um, it, it, absolutely, it absolutely is. I mean, in this case, like, 
I've already kind of said it, but what keeps me going here is the sense there's so much to learn from Zelazny about this kind of loving parody and this kind of generous imitation and just the art of pastiche and homage and how you draw on it, almost an infinitude of different sources and how you bring them together to make something new, which I mean, ultimately it's not just, it's not actually accurate to say like, Oh, that's, that's just postmodernism. You know, the cultural, the cultural logic of late capitalism is postmodernism, which is just to sort of repurpose every signifier. Like, okay. Yes. To an extent, but also like, I'll go back to what I've been doing this semester, which is Chaucer. And I think that people who have been educated by uh, on literature, mostly sort of post 1500 or so, like me, um, like I've been for the most part, uh, you know, my, my uh, Chaucer professor, like <laughs> he had, he had a very, a very snarky quip. One of the, during one of our classes, which is that scholars who write about novels love to say that, that X, Y, or Z is the first instance of something. And it never is. And I, you know, that that statement itself may be too sweeping, ironically, but he has a great point, which is that you look at Chaucer. Chaucer was doing his version of this Lassie project. He was drawing on the much more limited and much more precious. But I mean, he was drawing on a tremendous array of different sources and he was doing exactly this with them. He was yeah. repurposing them, layering them to get within one another, interweaving them, doing very often doing a loving parody. Um, actually, there's a there's a, a deep amount of very deep theory about Chaucer and, and the way that parody worked for Chaucer, which I won't get into. But I guess the point for me is like, I'm drawing a pretty clear line here between Rogers Lasney and Chaucer, one of the most indispensable writers in the English canon. And I'm not doing it to make a joke about Zelazny. I just think that that kind of the, the practice that is at the core of what Zelazny is doing is really has been really fundamental to literature for a very long time. And I think that even though these books themselves, I don't know that Nine Princes in Amber is a masterpiece, an indispensable text or whatever, you know, sort of laudatory hierarchical term you want to use. I do think there's a tremendous amount to be learned from Selassie, which is why we keep coming back to him, because he is one of the keys to kind of understanding what we're looking at when we have, you know, when we hold in our hands someone working later, um, even someone as big a deal as Gaiman uh, or many, many other writers. Anyway. That's my yeah. that's my response to all of that. Oh, well, one thing I would say there is that your professor was hardly the first person to say that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I've been sitting I on that line there. for two minutes. Yeah. That's <laughs> oh, um, man. So let's talk about a specific piece. We mentioned the amnesia, so it's, it's not a spoiler. Um, that is something that's a choice made by a lot of writers who are hacks because it's very easy for a uh how am i going to explain to my audience exactly what's going on here it's like well we'll, we'll take we'll take a main character who is so cataclysmically stupid that we need to explain everything in simple terms let's take it let's you know let, let's work with the amnesia angle like i mean i think like it's it's a gilligan's island move uh but I, just because something is done by a lot of idiots doesn't mean that it can't be done by somebody good. Uh, like, how did, uh, do you have reactions to that choice here? Did it work? Were there clever aspects of it? Did it interest you? All of that stuff, Connor. Yeah, I, as you were saying that, I thought of a quote totally unrelated to narrative arts, and I was thinking of, um, <laughs> I can't remember if it was 96 or 98, but anyway, at the end of one of those games, one of those famous Michael Jordan plays, uh, and I was thinking of the broadcast crew, 
Um, I think it was 98, actually, his last Jordan's last title. And towards the end of that that final game, that clinching game, uh, Jordan very craftily steals the ball, I believe, from Carl Malone, another Hall of Fame caliber player, steals the ball from him in a very sneaky way, goes down the court, scores, and that more or less seals the game. I think that might have been one of the really famous shots. I Again, I'm butchering this anecdote. But the point is, uh, I forget who the broadcaster was, but the color the, the color commentator said in like a very kind of, kind of chuckling voice, he was like, well, the thing about Michael is he already knows all of the tricks. And I think about that quote a lot <laughs> when, <laughs> when dealing with the arts, because I think Zelazny is a great example of someone who knows all of the tricks, specifically the tricks for sort of propulsive Call it what you want. Propulsive genre, pulpy storytelling. The tricks are all on display here, and they're often displayed to the point of being made a joke of themselves in, in a way that, again, would influence things like Buffy. What if, by the way, as a tangent, what if uh, Zelazny is the key to boat to Joss Whedon as well? In that case, Zelazny really is the hidden key to sort of 21st century uh, English language storytelling. But I digress. Um, <laughs> I love that idea. I think it's worth exploring later on at some point. Maybe maybe when we do the exclusive episode about the Guns of Avalon. But anyway, yeah. Um, to get to your point about amnesia, this was that was like a two minute answer that didn't really answer your question. I guess the point is like I, it was impressive, man. That that is like post grad shit right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was some stonewalling. I guess I guess what I'm going with this is just to say, no, it didn't bother me that this character broke up with amnesia because I immediately saw it for what it was. I immediately could see a writer having fun with these various tricks. You could call them cheap tricks. You could call them stupid tricks if you wanted to be unkind. But I, I, I saw a writer enjoying himself. And I think one of the really important shibboleths about writing that gets drilled into you in writing school is like, if you are not enjoying yourself, it's going to be much harder for you to create an experience where the writer or the reader enjoys themselves. And the reader can usually tell when you're really enjoying yourself, even if you're not a very good writer. With Zelazny, I think that like, that's another instance of, I could tell he was having fun with this. He wanted to have his character wake up in an American hospital in the seventies kind of storm out that's some good character development because like you know corman is not only corman doesn't just storm out he like leans on the hospital administrator to get info and threatens to sue him and then you know makes his way out so we see how crafty corman is like you know you have to always use even the greatest stories use cheap moves i mean there's always there's always a you know conceit like what is a conceit or an inciting incident you know if if not something if not a contrivance, I mean, I, I've, I've rambled a lot about artifice and storytelling on this pod before, but I mean, you know, um, you can write the most like plotless sort of introspective cerebral literary text ever, but you're going to need an inciting incident to sort of get those characters together. So maybe you start off with they have to gather for a funeral. That's a common one. And to me, amnesia is not necessarily any different. The only way, the only way that it's different here from like a general inciting incident or, you know, sort of propul- prop- initial propelling conceit is just that I get the sense that is sort of having fun and not at the expense of the reader, but we're all laughing together at uh, what he's doing. Is that does that finally make sense? Yes. Yeah. No, it, it was a, it was a fine answer like that. That the, you did not dodge. Not not that you. Well, th- see, now I'm sounding like I'm, I'm, I'm slamming you on the earlier answer. You know what I mean? That, that, that was great. <laughs> People sitting there being like, wait, Michael Jordan, that kind of rings a bell. Yeah, I'm like Googling him and like looking at Space Jam, you know. <laughs> I think people might have missed your joke uh, last week on Twitter. People were posting their, you know, 
post five five perfect movies and it's kind of one of those quote tweet viral things and pete quote tweeted me and his his five uh perfect movies were all basketball movies it was like air bud uh space jam hoosiers <laughs> yeah and, and of course of course the joke being that uh as if Pete, as if we're we're going to believe that Pete has ever watched sports. I mean, come on. Yeah, like like if you if you set like uh, five balls in front of me, could I pick the basketball? Well, probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Man, um, so you know, I think I, I I think a couple things. I want to tell everyone. Pete and I decided that because I already started reading Guns of Avalon by accident. Um, we're probably going to do Guns of Avalon on Thursday as our as an exclusive. Um, you know, that's going to be hopefully coming out very soon. So we'll continue discussion of this kind of behind the paywall. If you're listening to this, and you're not already a patron. Again, this is, as always, a good time to become one. But um, I want to plug that a little bit. Uh, I think we have tons more to discuss about this series about Zelazny, and we'll we'll touch some of that in that next session. But before we get to that, I uh, I want to go back to something we we often open with, but didn't this time. Um, when did you first read this and what was its impact on you at the time? Oh, sure. Okay. Uh, well, in order to talk about that, I need to talk about the science fiction book club. So in the back of a lot of comic books and as an insert flyer in a lot of books in the seventies, you would get a, a sheet and that sheet had a bunch of different, uh, uh, books like, like here's here's 40 different science fiction books or 100 different science fiction books, and you can get them for a penny a piece. All you need to do is to commit to buying one more book a month for the next five years. I'm just picturing you, like, age 11, like, seeing this and your eyes going wide and, like, you're, like, grasping for your fistful of pennies in your piggy bank. Oh, and <laughs> I'm like, the math on this has to work. It has to work. <laughs> So, yeah, like I, I took the little stamps they gave us and I affixed it to all the and I, I chose these. And I uh, one of the reasons I chose them is because like I was I was like eight, maybe nine. And those covers were like the most D&D things I'd ever seen on a book cover in my life. Uh, you know, it's like the uh, like the Frank Frazetta dude holding a holding a cutlass fighting off a bunch of like sentient tigers. I'm in. I had to see this. Yeah, and, it's, uh, it's very it, it's uh, it's definitely a homoerotic cover before that was like before that was a thing people admitted because it's like, you know, all sort of oily, muscled, shirtless Corwin uh, fighting off. In yeah, jeans. Exactly, like, in, je- in jeans. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, and I have, uh, you know, I, I, I feel very honored that you, you lent me these uh, copies that you've had for this entire time because I have, I have those copies of those books. Those are the ones that you gave to me. Yep. I, I'm, yep. honor- I'm honestly honored, Pete. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's what, like, we're doing this podcast for a lot of reasons, but one of them is like, I've got all these books I want somebody else to read. And like, you are my concrete example of somebody who's who's genuinely giving it a shot. And, and like, it just means the world to me, man. This has been fantastic. This sounds like the last episode. It's not. It's not the last episode. <laughs> yeah, uh, you guys miss it. We, we've been sued into oblivion by uh, Disney for using the Mandalorian theme. Uh, <laughs> Um, it's, it's, it's curtains now. No, no, it is that I think it's probably a good place to start winding down. I want to remind everyone, like I said, behind the paywall, we're going to discuss this more probably later this week, if not, then very soon. Um, 
And there's more exciting stuff in our future. We're, def- we're getting to Bruce Sterling soon. Um, Pete has a couple more authors interviews, author interviews lined up that uh, we might we might keep secret, but they're they're definitely accomplished. Or you can say the names if you want, Pete. I mean, it's up to you. But oh, I, I think we'll 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 start dropping teasers soon. I, no, no reason. I mean, this is a this is an open episode. Like, why should we mention like? James Allen Gardner or any of these guys. It just, <laughs> just to think of a random name, James, yeah. James Allen Gardner. It could be James Allen Gardner. It could be anybody. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and, and I think that's one thing I want to say. Like, uh, we've been saying we're going to do more author interviews and we're working on making that happen. So um, that's exciting. I think, honestly, I feel good about leaving this book discussion here. Pete, is there more you want to add? The only thing I would say is that a lot of our listeners don't read the books as we go through, and I am not judging you for that in any way. I just want to say this one's pretty accessible. Like if if you're gonna if you're gonna start and try one of these, this is not a bad one to do it with. Yeah, I'm not sure that this one even crests fifty thousand words. Like Pete said, if you you could definitely read it on a sunny afternoon. Quite, uh, quite easily. Um, it's, and it's just, it's just a fun romp. I mean, romp is a key word here. Like there's nothing about it that isn't just, just really enjoyable. So, um, I mean, there is the, there, well, the character does suffer some, I guess that's a little bit, that's, that's like like, maybe less enjoyable, but I won't spoil it anyway. Um, it's, it's definitely a fun, it's a fun read. This is one of the most like purely fun reads we've done. And I think it lives up to its billing. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. And like I said, we have more Zelazny coming up. And I know that as, if, this, if this pod continues, if we don't both get hit by buses, then there will be more Zelazny after that as well. Because Zelazny has become... I think you, I think you nailed it. I think Zelazny and Le Guin are kind of the two guiding lights of this pod. Um, you know, but both sort of new, new wave writers. Um, and I feel great about that. So Yeah, I think they're great choices, obviously. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, uh, signing off from Zelazny Picnic. <laughs> is is somebody drilling in your backyard, man? Like, what is oh, that? My, I think my mom's making cookies. Sorry. Oh, no, that's totally worth it, dude. Uh, yeah. oh, that's, another, that's another good reason for me to sign off. Get some cookie dough. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, <Later> everybody. everybody. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>